Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining me yet again on another episode of the Red Light Report. And it's already the end of August here. We're going to be flipping the calendar into September. So I hope you guys are enjoying your last month of summer, technically speaking, not long before we start seeing the fall colors uh, springing upon us, so to speak. But for those who have been listening, especially the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been covering the topic of electricity and electromagnetic radiation as it affects our health, as it negatively impacts our health. And so if you're just joining us for the first week here, or you're kind of jumping around, and you haven't caught the first two episodes or the first two parts of this three-part series, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to those two. You don't necessarily need to do that right now in lieu of listening to this current episode, but I'd recommend, especially if this information is enrapturing and kind of perks your ears a little bit and or resonates with you in whatever way that is, Again, I highly recommend going back to those first two parts. They're just simply entitled The Invisible Rainbow, part one, and then part two. And so in this episode specifically, or in the solo episode, I should say, we're going to be really detailing the effects on, let's say, birds, insects, plants, and humans. So we've had a nice historical perspective. We've, we've even gleaned some interesting anecdotes and uh, scientific or even researcher-based material from previous chapters, especially the heart. But in, again, in this episode, I'm not going to read necessarily a straight chapter per se, but I'm going to cherry pick some of what I think are the most interesting aspects or most interesting anecdotes I can relate to you to continue to press upon you the magnitude of this information, or, or more specifically, the magnitude of the negative impact that non-native EMFs have on our biology. And I know I got a little hyperbole, or hyperbolic, I should say, last episode when I said to you that potentially your EMF mitigating strategies are more important than your diet or exercise strategies, but potentially that could be the case. Because again, if you have a broken motor, it doesn't matter what you do to that broken motor if you don't fix it or replace it first. So in that sense, with our mitochondria, we need to make sure they're protected and healthy and robust before we start doing the cherry on top, which is the uh, organic food, you know, that, that high-end fuel for the motor, or start multiplying them and increasing the mitochondrial density with exercise and other health-related biohacking strategies. We need to make sure the motor itself is healthy and strong. And what we've detailed in the previous two solo sodes from this book, The Invisible Rainbow, by Arthur Furstenberg, is that EMFs directly harm our metabolic health, also known as our mitochondrial health. So if you're not taking EMFs into consideration, then that food and that exercise might not be as potent or as positive of an effect as you think it is because there's still that perpetual 24-7 EMF attacking those motors, i.e. 
the mitochondria. So again, I'm not trying to dissuade you from including or exercising your diet and activity, exercise activity paradigms, but I'm trying to press upon you that if you're not taking EMFs seriously, then you can't out-exercise and you can't out-diet this ocean of EMFs we're swimming in. So you have to have some strategies in place. So again, I've brought up things like grounding, whether it's outside or grounding products that you can use. I'm standing on a grounding mat right now. As I'm recording this episode, I always have one in my office. I have one on the couch where I do a lot of my reading and our mattress pad is an EMF or I should say a grounding mattress pad. So, and the reason grounding is such a big deal, you guys have heard me say this before, the reason grounding is such a big deal is because it's anti-EMF. This was proven by Clint Ober in his book, Grounding. That was my big aha moment. And so uh, you can find a link in the uh, podcast description here to go directly to Clint Ober's products and check them out. I mean, they're not expensive and considering what they do, Not only are you protecting yourself from EMFs, but you're accruing more electrons on a consistent basis, and and that's kind of the foundation of mitochondrial health or increasing your voltage, so to speak. So just take that into consideration, whether you're just going for general health and wellness, longevity, biohacking, you name it, uh, you need some type of anti-EMF strategy. And so we're just going to jump right into this chapter not from the beginning, but a little ways in. It's uh, The chapter's entitled, Bees, Birds, Trees, and Humans. And so I'm going to, again, I found relatively short little messages or anecdotes or stories in each of those areas. So we're going to look at insects, we're going to look at birds, we're going to look at plants and trees, and then we're going to look at humans and how this evolution of electrical technology has had a negative impact. Of course, we know technology has had many amazing advancements for for humankind, but on the other side of the coin, what has it done to human health? What has it done to other animal and plant and insect health? What has it done to Mother Earth? That's the question that rarely gets asked, and of course, that was the point of this book by Arthur Furstenberg. So the first area we're going to jump into here is specifically about birds. And so here we go. It may seem surprising that sparrows, of all birds, seem to be among the most sensitive to electricity. But we recall from chapter 7 that sparrows were noted to suffer the most among all birds during the influenza pandemic of 1732 to 1733, following upon the return of sunspots to the sun and the celestial aurora to polar skies. The impact of radio waves on bird reproduction is no longer a matter of conjecture. While scientist Balmori was doing his field study on storks, scientists in Greece were proving the effects in their laboratory. Ioannis Megras and Thomas Zenos of Aristotle University of Thelesolinki first exposed 240 newly laid quail eggs in an incubator to the type of radiation emitted by FM radio transmitters. The levels of radiation were about the same as if the birds had built nests 1 to 300 yards away from the 50,000 watt tower. But these eggs were exposed for only 3 days and for only 1 hour a day, 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the afternoon. 45 of the embryos died. 
none of the 60 quail eggs nearby in an unirradiated incubator died. Then, the same researchers exposed 60 more coil eggs to pulsed microwaves, the type of radiation emitted by cell towers, continuously for three days, this time at only 5 microwatts per centimeter squared, a level of exposure commonly found in cities today. Under these conditions, 65% of the embryos were killed. In a third experiment, 380 chicken eggs were exposed to microwave radiation at a power level of 8.8 microwatts per square centimeter. Instead of irradiating, excuse me, instead of irradiating them as soon as they were laid, the researchers exposed the eggs between the 3rd and 10th days of their development. Under these conditions, most of the embryos lived but developed abnormally. Under continuous wave radiation, 86% of the eggs hatched but 14% of the chicks died soon after birth. Almost half of the remaining chicks were developmentally retarded and 3% had severe birth defects. Pulsed radiation produced a similar number of deaths, about half the number of retarded chicks and twice the number of birth defects. Of 116 unexposed eggs, only two failed to hatch, none had birth defects, and only two were retarded in development. Disastrous effects of radio waves on birds were first noticed during the 1930s by those who were most intimately connected with them, homing pigeon racers and divisions of the military that were still using carrier pigeons for communication. Charles Heitzman, a father of the pigeon racing sport in the United States, and Major Otto Meyer, former head of the United States Army's Pigeon Corps, were both alarmed by the large number of pigeons losing their way during the heyday years of the expansion of radio broadcasting. Apparently, after many pigeon generations, the birds learned to adjust to the new conditions and the problem was largely, though not entirely, forgotten. Then, in the late 1960s, a team of Canadian researchers shed some new light on the problem. They were J. Allen Tanner at Control Systems Laboratory, National Research Council, Canada, and Cesar Romero, Romero Sierra, a professor of neuroanatomy at Queen's University, and Jaime Biguidel Blanco, biophysicist and research associate in the Queen's University Department of Anatomy. They began by exposing young chicks to microwave radiation at relatively high power levels, between 10 and 30 milliwatts per centimeter squared. The birds usually collapsed to the floor of their cage within 5 to 20 seconds. Even if only their tail feathers were exposed, they would scream, defecate, and try to escape. Experiments using pigeons and seagulls gave similar results. But not if the birds were de-feathered. Chickens that had been plucked showed no evident reaction to being irradiated until about the 12th day when their regrowing feathers were about 1 centimeter long. The researchers then measured radiation patterns in the laboratory using both individual feathers and arrays of feathers spaced varying distance apart and proved that the bird feathers made fine receiving aerials for microwaves. If this takes place while the bird is flying, they said, quote, an increase in the microwave field strength should be sensed by the bird, end quote. In the 1970s, Professor William Keaton at Cornell University proved that pigeons are so sensitive to magnetic disturbances that a change in the Earth's magnetic field amounting to less than one ten-thousandth of its average value significantly altered the takeoff direction of a bird's homeward flight. 
In the 1990s and early 2000s, when cell phone towers proliferated, raising the ambient levels of microwave radiation tens to hundreds of times higher everywhere in the world, when white storks had trouble reproducing near antennas, and when house sparrows made it onto the endangered species list in the United Kingdom, membership in the pigeon racing clubs plummeted and pigeon fanciers were forced to pay renewed attention to a problem they had laid aside in the 1950s. The secretary of the New Ross and District Pigeon Club in Ireland, Jim Power, blamed the new problem of lost birds, which had began in about 1995, on, quote, satellite television and the mobile telecommunications network, end quote. The story made the front page of the Irish Times. Both events, the explosion of cell towers and severe pigeon losses, came to America in 1997. In early October 1998, the story made, made headlines all over the United States as, during a two-week period, Pigeon races far and wide ended in disaster with up to 90% of birds going missing. Quote, They're turning up in barns, under bird feeders, on window ledges, and sometimes just standing out in the rain, read the first paragraph of an article in the Washington Post. Out of 1,800 birds competing in a race from Newmarket, Virginia to Allentown, Pennsylvania, about 1,500 vanished. In a race from western Pennsylvania to suburban Philadelphia, 700 out of 900 pigeons failed to return. In a 350-mile race from Pittsburgh to Brooklyn, 1,000 out of 1,200 birds never showed up. Very few wild birds were out flying. Hawks were not out hunting. Geese were scattered all over the sky instead of in a normal V formation. The trigger for the two weeks of sudden bird disorientation was apparently the commencement of microwave rain falling from satellites. On September 23, 1998, Motorola's 66 newly launched Iridium satellites had begun providing the first ever cell phone service from space everywhere on Earth to its first 2,000 trial subscribers. Many members of the British Royal Pigeon Racing Association changed the route their birds flew so as to avoid cell towers and lose fewer pigeons. In 2004, the association called for more research into the impact of microwave radiation on birds. And as old-time pigeon racers gradually left the sport in discouragement, they were replaced by young enthusiasts who do not remember what it was like when almost all released pigeons would fly directly back to the roosts. The kinds of extraordinary losses Larry Lucero of New Mexico complained about in 1997 in 80% loss of birds in eight weeks of racing are no longer considered unusual. The president of the Chennai Homer Pigeons Association in India reminisces, quote, earlier, he says, before the advent of cell phones, if I liberated 100 pigeons in my neighborhood, all would return home in a couple of minutes, end quote. Texas pigeon racer Robert Benson states today that, quote, under the best of conditions, a 25% loss uh, before the race can be expected. It is not surprising to see a 75% loss. Another quote, the number of losses occurring each year, says Kevin Murphy at Scotland's Angus College, is showing no signs of improvement, and whenever you speak to pigeon fanciers, it's the same old story. 
high losses in young birds, and very few fanciers that are able to build up an established team of three, four, and five-year-old experienced birds, end quote. Did you guys know that it's teeth whitening season? Well, heck, isn't it always teeth whitening season? Who doesn't want to have the widest, brightest smile in the room? And not just that, but also receive the benefits of red light therapy for the oral cavity at the same time, the Guardian Plus, which implements both blue light for the teeth whitening aspect, but also the red and near-infrared light for the red light therapy aspect for your oral cavity. We're all familiar with blue light for the teeth whitening aspect, but did you know the blue light therapy is also beneficial for selectively killing harmful bacteria, leaving the beneficial bacteria thriving and well, and blue light therapy is also good for gum health and tooth sensitivity. And of course we know the laundry list of things that red light therapy does for the oral cavity, such as gum health and gum pain, infections and inflammation, wound healing, gingivitis, oral mucositis, so on and so forth. So with the Guardian Plus, you get the best of both worlds. Whiten your teeth and improve the health of your oral microbiome. So that covers birds for the moment. Now let's jump into insects, and here's a little section on that. The insect world is as susceptible to electromagnetic pollution as the amphibian world. In fact, as Alexander Chan discovered in 2004, it is so easy to demonstrate the effects of computers and cell phones on diminutive creatures that even a sophomore in high school can do it for a science fair project. Then 15 years old and a student at Benjamin Cardozo High School in Queens, New York, Chan exposed fruit fly larvae daily to a loudspeaker, a computer monitor, and a cell phone and observed their development. The flies that were exposed to the cell phone failed to develop wings. Quote, Radiation and electromagnetic emissions are really more harmful than anyone realizes, the stunned teenager concluded. At the University of Athens, Demetrius Panagopoulos has been doing similar work with fruit flies for a decade and a half, and producing results that are just as alarming. Like Chan, and unlike most other scientists doing work on electromagnetic radiation, he and his colleagues in the Department of Cell Biology and Biophysics decided to expose their flies not to specialized equipment, but to an ordinary cell phone in use. In their first experiments in 2000, they found that a few minutes exposure was enough to radically interfere with fly reproduction. Exposing adult flies to the antenna of a working cell phone for just six minutes a day for five consecutive days, reduced the number of eggs they laid by 50 to 60%. When the insects were exposed for only two days, i.e. a total of 12 minutes of radiation, the number of eggs was reduced by an average of 42%. Even flies that were exposed for only one minute a day for five days produced 36% fewer offspring than their unexposed cousins. Regardless of whether just male flies, just female flies, or both were exposed, the number of offspring was greatly reduced. Their experiments cried out for an explanation because such rapid sterilization was an effect scientists were used to seeing from x-rays, not from an ordinary cell phone. So in follow-up experiments, after zapping the flies with a cell phone for five days, again for six minutes a day, the researchers killed the flies and used a standard technique, the TUNEL assay, or capital T-U-N-E-L assay, to look for fragmented DNA in the ovaries and egg chambers of the female flies. Using this technique, they proved that the brief exposure to a cell phone was causing the death and degeneration of 
50 to 60% of the, both the eggs and their supporting cells at all stages of development. In later experiments, these scientists have found intensity windows of maximal effect, a not uncommon finding in electromagnetic research. In other words, the greatest damage is not always done by the greatest levels of radiation. Holding your cell phone away from your head may actually worsen the damage. Using a 900 megawatts phone, Panagopoulos's flies produced even fewer offspring when the antenna was held a foot away, reducing the exposure level by a factor of almost 40, than when the antenna was actually touching the vial of flies. With an 1800 MHz phone, maximum mortality occurred at a distance of 8 inches. In a large series of further experiments, exposure to a cordless phone base station, a cordless phone handset, a Wi-Fi router, a baby monitor, a microwave oven, and several different kinds of Bluetooth devices each lowered the numbers of offspring of two different species of fruit flies by up to 30%. Exposure time varied from 6 minutes, just once, up to 30 minutes a day for 9 days. Every experiment, regardless of exposure time, produced cell death in the developing eggs and at least 10% reduction in the number of offspring. And in Belgium, entomologist Marie-Claire Camayer has shown, in experiments that any high school student could duplicate, that a cell phone is clearly and obviously dangerous even when it is turned off as long as the battery remains in it. She brought thousands of ants into her laboratory at the Free University of Brussels, placed an older model flip phone under their colonies where they could neither see nor smell it and simply watched them walk. When the phone contained no battery, it affected the ants not at all. Neither did the battery alone. But as soon as the battery was placed in the phone, even though it was still turned off, the ants' helter-skelter movements became radically disturbed. The little creatures darted back and forth with increased vigor as if trying to escape an enemy they could not see. The rate at which they changed directions, their angular speed, increased by 80%. When the phone was then put into standby mode, they changed directions even more. Finally, Camier turned the phone on. Within 2-3 to three seconds, the insects visibly slowed down. Camayer next exposed a fresh ant colony to a smartphone and then a DECT cordless phone. In each case, the creature's angular speed doubled or tripled, while their actual walking speed drastically slowed. This happened within 1 to 3 seconds. When the DECT phone was on, the ants were nearly paralyzed. After being thus exposed for three minutes to each of the two pieces of equipment, they required two to four hours before they appeared normal again. Camayer then repeated the experiment with a fresh colony, this time placing a flip phone in standby mode under the ant's nest instead of under its foraging area. Immediately, all the ants left their nest, taking their eggs, larvae, and nymphs with them. Quote, it looked spectacular, she said. They relocated their nest far from the place under which the mobile phone was located. After the experimentation, when the mobile phone has been removed, the ants returned to their initial nest, transporting back their brood into the nest. This relocation lasted about one hour. End quote. Finally, Camier tested a Wi-Fi router placed between two colonies of ants about one foot away from each colony. While the router was switched off, nothing unusual happened. But... 
Quote, after a few seconds of exposure, the ants clearly presented signs of bad health and, consequently, a disturbed behavior. End quote. After being exposed to the router for 30 minutes, the ants had to recover for 6 to 8 hours before foraging as usual again. Quote, Unfortunately, wrote Camier, several ants never recovered and were found dead a few days later. End quote. For his part, Panagopoulos, in a chapter of a 2012 book about Drosophila melanogaster, has issued a severe and unusual warning to the world. Quote, the experimental results of ours, as well as of other experimenters, show that microwave exposure, even for a few minutes per day, and only for a few days, at exposure levels encountered in our everyday environment, is maybe the most intense modern environmental stress factor compared to other environmental stress factors tested so far, like starvation, heat, chemicals, electric or magnetic fields, end quote. He warned that DNA damage to the developing egg may, quote, result in inherited mutations transferred to subsequent generations. For this reason, the biological changes due to microwave radiation may be far more dangerous as they may not be restricted only to changes in reproductive capacity, end quote. All right, so that's the end of that section. Let's move on to the next one. This is where things get pretty darn interesting because we're going to move into bees. And so this section of the chapter is entitled Colony Collapse Disorder. In recent years, an apocryphal story has circulated about Albert Einstein. Quote, if the bee disappears from the surface of the earth, he is supposed to have said, man would have no more than four years to live. End quote. Perishing honeybees do constitute a warning to the world, but the real story is not circulating because it is not yet acceptable to remove the cultural blinders regarding electricity. Beekeepers the world over are still poisoning their bees against parasites that are not killing them, instead of paying attention to the influence that is. Quote, I observed a pronounced restlessness in my bee colonies, wrote Fernandan Ruzica to the Austrian Bee Company, or beekeeping community in 2002, quote, a greatly increased urge to swarm, end quote. Ruzica, a medical physicist retired from the University of Vienna, is also an amateur beekeeper. He observed the strange behavior after telecommunication antennas appeared in a field near, their, near his hives. Quote, I am a frame hive beekeeper, he wrote. The bees now built their honeycombs not in the manner prescribed by the frames, but in a helter-skelter fashion. In the summer, the colonies collapsed without any obvious cause. In the winter, despite snow and below zero temperatures, the bees would fly out and freeze to death next to the hive. Colonies that exhibited this behavior collapsed, even though they were strong, healthy colonies with active queens before the winter. They were provided with adequate additional food, and the fall pollen supply had been more than efficient, end quote. Ruzica told his story in Bee World and published a survey form in Beekeeper requesting to be contacted by others with antennas near their hives. The majority of Beekeeper readers who filled out his form corroborated what he had written. Their bees had become suddenly aggressive when the antennas appeared and had begun to swarm. Their healthy colonies had vanished for no other reason. As we saw in Chapter 9, bee colonies have been disappearing near communication towers for over a century. 
On the small island lying off England's southernmost coast where Marconi sent the world's first long-distance radio transmission in 1901, the bees began to vanish. By 1906, the island, then host to the greatest density of radio transmissions in the world, was almost empty of bees. Thousands, unable to fly, were found crawling and dying on the ground outside their hives. Healthy bees imported from mainland began dying within a week of arrival. During the next few decades, quote, Isle of White disease was reported throughout Great Britain and in Italy, France, Switzerland, Germany, Brazil, Australia, Canada, South Africa, and the United States. Almost everyone assumed it was infectious, and in 1912, when Graham Smith at Cambridge University found a parasite called Nosema apis in the stomachs of diseased bees, most people thought the mystery had been solved. However, this theory was soon disproven by John Anderson and John Rennie in Scotland. Swarms of bees that were crawling with Isle of Wight disease were free of Nosema, while healthy stocks were found teeming with the parasite. Finally, the two research deliberately infected a colony with Nosema. It did not produce disease. So the search went on for a different parasite, and in 1919, Rennie presented Acarapis woody, or woodi, which inhabited bees' breathing passages. His article in The Transactions of Royal Society of Edinburgh had such wide influence that the tracheal mite is today regarded as one of the two major parasitic infections of bees that are responsible for colony collapse disorder. It supposedly kills bees by sucking their blood and clogging their breathing tubes. In fact, this is so widely accepted that it is standard practice for commercial beekeepers to treat all their bees with miticides to kill other tracheal mites and a second kind of mite, the varora mite. Excuse my pronunciation. However, in the late 1950s, the tracheal mite theory was disproven too by eminent British bee pathologist Leslie Bailey. Not only did he show that mite-infested bees did not die at greater rates than non-infested bees, but he deliberately infected healthy bees with the parasite and proved that it did not cause disease. The only effect of infestations, wrote Bailey in 1991, is to, quote, shorten very slightly the life of bees, but usually causing no obvious sickness in spite of the abnormal appearance of infested tracheae, end quote. Bailey also warned against attaching too much importance to the Verora mite, which, he said, had achieved its notoriety partly because of its size. It is the only common parasite of honeybees that can be seen with the naked eye and identified with a hand lens. Verora mites, after all, while not harmless, have coexisted with wild populations of honeybees for a century in Japan and Russia, and more recently in Serbia, Tunisia, Sweden, Brazil, Uruguay, and even parts of California and New York. Other environmental factors, said Bailey, determine the amount of damage done by this parasite. The problem with Isle of Wight disease smoldered for decades, not often making the news. But the number of managed honeybee colonies in the United States had been quietly declining since the 1940s. During the 1960s and the 1970s, unexplained large losses acquired a new name, quote, disappearing disease and was reported in Montana, Nebraska, Louisiana, California, Texas, Europe, Mexico, Argentina, and Australia. Beekeepers would open their hives in autumn or winter to find ample supplies of stored pollen and honey, but no bees. 
where some dead or living bees remained, they were not malnourished and had no mites or other parasites, bacteria, bacteria, viruses, or poisons. Attempts to transmit the condition by introducing bees from diseased hives into healthy ones failed. When a survey was conducted by the United States Department of Agriculture in 1975, the problem turned up in 33 states, with beekeepers often volunteering that it had been prevalent in their colonies for 10 or 15 years and that it was getting worse with each passing year. Then, during the last half of the 1990s, when the telecommunications industry was beginning to weave its web of antennas over cities, farmland, and wildland, American farmers reawoke to a crisis. The smoldering, half-forgotten problem about disappearing bees was erupting in flames. Farmers stung by bee shortages, warned a headline in June 15, 1996 edition of the Washington Post. During the previous winter, beekeepers had lost 45% of their hives in Kentucky, 60% in Michigan, 80% in Maine. Farmers were also waking up to the fact that wild bees weren't going to be there to take over the job of pollinating their crops because 90% of all feral honeybee colonies nationwide had already disappeared. All this havoc, at least in the United States, was thought to have been caused by two bee parasites, the tracheal mite and the even more voracious verora mite, assumed to have hitchhiked into the United States in shipments of infected bees from Europe and Asia during the 1980s. But the alarm spread to Europe during the winter of 2002-2003. Officially, there was no panic. Colony losses were only 20% in Sweden and 29% in Germany. Swedish beekeeper Björn Svensson, who published an article titled Silent Spring in Northern Europe, begged to differ. When he opened his hives that winter, 50 out of 70 colonies were devoid of life. A neighbor had lost 95 of 120 colonies, and another neighbor lost 24 of 25. Fellow beekeepers in Austria, Germany, Belgium, Denmark, and Finland were reporting similar huge losses, although many could find no Veroa mites and no signs of foul brood, sec brood, chalk brood, nosema, or other bee diseases. Finally, during the winter of 2006 2007, what was once known as Isle of Wight disease, and that white is spelled W-I-G-H-T, by the way, Isle of Wight disease became a worldwide panzootic, frightening farmers and the public everywhere, and was given yet another name, Colony Collapse Disorder. The United States lost one-third of its honeybees in just a few months, with many beekeepers experiencing a total loss of their bees. First thought to be confined to Europe, North America, and Brazil, Colony collapse disorder soon spread to China, India, Japan, and Africa. Farmers in many countries are pollinating growing acreages of crops with half as many bees and replenishing their losses with greater difficulty and expense with each succeeding year. And the culprit, according to a study conducted by a joint team of American and Belgian researchers, does not seem to be tracheal mites, varroa mites, nosema, or any other particular infectious disease vector. During the disastrous winter of 2006-2007, this team, headed by Jeffrey Pettis of the United States Department of Agriculture's Bee Research Laboratory, examined 13 large apiaries owned by 11 different commercial beekeepers in Florida and California, and to their amazement, were unable to find any specific nutritional, toxic, or infectious factor that differentiated bees or colonies with and without colony collapse disorder. 
tracheal mites were actually more than three times as prevalent in the healthy colonies as in the decimated colonies. Even the supposedly devastating varroa mite was not more prevalent in collapsed or collapsing colonies. The only helpful conclusion that these scientists were able to come to was that, quote, some other factor, end quote, must be responsible for bees' weakened state and that the other factor seemed to be location-specific. Colonies with this disorder tended to cluster together. The picture of this disease that has beekeepers so thoroughly baffled resembles nothing so much as the scene of an apparent mass murder where there's not even any real evidence of a crime. A million colonies a year in the United States disappear overnight without leaving a trace. The queen bee and the mother of the hive is simply abandoned by the workers and left to starve and die. What has scientists even more stumped is that the dead colonies tend to be left alone even by the parasites that normally infest dead honey bee colonies. It is as though there were a large keep out sign at the entrance to these hives that is respected by friend and foe alike. The international beekeeping community is extremely resistant to giving up its long-standing belief in the infectious nature of bee losses, and so, in the absence of evidence, most beekeepers are falling back on the only thing they know, more toxic pesticides to kill mites. But the decimation of so many other insect species that are not subject to the same parasites is a strong hint that a non-infectious agent is at work. The Franklin bumblebee, once prevalent in southwestern Oregon, has not been seen in a decade. Until the mid-1990s, the western bumblebee was abundant in forests, fields, and urban backyards throughout western North America, from New Mexico to Saskatchewan to Alaska. It has vanished, except for small pockets in the Colorado Rockies. The rusty-patched bumblebee, a familiar visitor to flowers on the Cornell University campus when I was a student there, has not been seen in New York State since 2004. Once common in 26 states and two Canadian provinces, this insect has disappeared from the eastern United States and Canada and has drastically declined in the American Midwest. The Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation lists 57 species of bees and 49 species of butterflies and moths native to North America and Hawaii as vulnerable, imperiled, or extinct in their entire range. The Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife lists 46 species of butterflies and moths that are threatened and endangered in Massachusetts. Exquisite sensitivity to electromagnetic fields has been demonstrated in a variety of insects. Termites, for example, will avoid building their galleries near other groups of termites so as not to compete for food. In 1977, Gunther Becker proved that the signal that enables groups of termites to avoid competing with each other passes through walls and can be blocked by aluminum, but not by thick polystyrene and not by solid glass. The signal blocked by aluminum had to be alternating electric fields emitted by the insects. It must not be forgotten, warns German biologist Ulrich Warnke, that every insect is equipped with a pair of antennas which are demonstrably electromagnetic sensors. In fact, the signals communicated between honeybees when they meet and touch an antennas can be recorded by an oscilloscope and appear to be frequency modulated between 180 Hz and 250 Hz. And the famous Wagle Dance, Warnke reminds us, 
by means of which honeybees tell each other the precise direction of food sources with respect to the sun depends on their knowing the exact position of the sun even on cloudy days and within the darkness of the hive. Bees accomplish this feat by sensing minute variation in the Earth's magnetic field, a sense, he says, that can be rendered useless under the assault of wireless transmissions with their constantly changing magnetic fields. The quickest way to destroy a beehive, investigators have found, is to place a wireless telephone inside it. The results of such experiments, considering the complete denial by our society that wireless technology has any environmental effects at all, has been almost unbelievable. In 2009, environmentalist scientist, excuse me, environmental scientist Ved Parkesh Sharma and zoologist Nilima Kumar at Punjab University in India placed two cell phones each, one in talk mode and one in listening mode in order to maintain the connection, in two of four hives. They turned them on at 11 in the morning for 15 minutes and at 3 in the afternoon for another 15 minutes. They did this twice a week between February and April. As soon as the phones were turned on, the bees would become quiet and still, quote, as if unable to decide what to do, end quote. During the course of three months, fewer and fewer bees flew in and out of those two hives. The number of eggs laid by the queen declined from 546 to 145 per day. The area under the brood declined from 2,866 square centimeters to 760 square centimeters. Honey stores declined from 3,200 to 400 square centimeters. Quote, At the end of the, the experiment, there was neither honey nor pollen nor brood nor bees in the colony, resulting in complete loss of the colony, wrote the authors. The following year, Kumar performed a landmark experiment described in more detail in chapter 11 that showed dramatically and simply how electromagnetic fields interfere with cellular metabolism. She repeated the exposure of the previous year and then analyzed the bee's blood, or hemolymph as it is called. After the cell phones had been on for only 10 minutes, the concentration of glucose, cholesterol, total carbohydrates, total lipids, and total protein rose tremendously. In other words, after just 10 minutes of exposure to cell phones, the bees practically could not metabolize sugars, proteins, or fats. As in humans, uh, their cells were becoming oxygen-starved. But it happens much faster in bees. When the phones were left on longer than 20 minutes, the bees, at first quiet, became aggressive and started beating their wings in agitation. Europe's first UMTS network, which is now known as 3G, short for third generation, and which turned every cell phone into a computer and every cell tower into a transmitter of broadband radiation, went into service in fall of 2002, just before the disastrous winter during which so many of Europe's honeybees vanished. Warnke believes that HAARP, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Project, is responsible for the worldwide outbreak of colony collapse disorder that began in the winter of 2006 to 2007. In ionospheric heater, owned until recently by the United States Air Force and operated jointly with the Navy and the University of Alaska, HARP, or the HAARP, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Project, 
is only the most powerful radio transmitter on Earth. Capable of emitting a peak effective radiated power of 4 billion watts, its purpose is to set the biosphere to ringing. HARP, whose 180 antenna towers sit on the northwest tip of Alaska's Wrangell State Elias National Park, has turned the ionosphere itself, the life-giving layer of sky to which every creature is tuned, into a gigantic radio transmitter useful for military communications, including communicating with submarines. By aiming a narrow beam of pulsating energy upwards, there near the North Pole where the aurora meets the Earth, Project HARP can force rivers of sky to broadcast radio transmissions at the frequency of the pulsations and to send those signals to almost everywhere on Earth. In 1988, when planning for HARP was still in its early stages, physicist Richard Williams, a consultant to Princeton's University's David Sarnoff Laboratory, called the project, quote, an irresponsible act of global vandalism. Quote, Look at the power levels that are, will be used, he wrote in Physics and Society, the newsletter of the American Physical Society. Quote, this is equivalent to the output of 10 to 100 large power-generating stations, end quote. In 1994, when HARP's first 18 antennas were about to be put into service, Williams was interviewed by Earth Island Journal. Quote, a 10 billion watt generator, he said, running continuously for one hour would deliver a quantity of energy equal to that of a Hiroshima-sized atomic bomb, end quote. In March 1999, HARP expanded to 48 antennas and an effective radiated power of almost 1 billion watts. The rest of its complement of 180 antennas were delivered between 2004 and 2006, enabling the facility to reach its full intended power during the winter of 2006 and 2007. Although the Air Force shut HARP down in 2014 and proposed to dismantle the facility, it instead was acquired by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, which reopened the facility in February 2017 and has made it available to the scientific community for research. The university is operating the facility at a loss. It announced in 2019 that if it does not get sufficient funding, it will shut down HARP permanently. The frequencies of HARP, says Warnke, superimpose unnatural magnetic fields on the natural resonant frequencies of the sky, whose daily variations have not changed since life appeared on Earth. This is disastrous for bees. They, quote, lose an orientation, he says, that served them for millions of years as a reliable indicator of the time of day, end quote. Okay, so that ends the, the tale of the bees, which is, I mean, how crazy is that information? And it really paints the picture of the effects of this invisible light that we're all surrounded by. We're swimming in this ocean of EMFs, and the insects and the bees are going to react to whatever's in the environment first. So the fact that they're acting so drastically or the reacting so drastically is a telltale sign that it's happening to us but we're reacting in a slower manner but believe me <laughs> there's negative repercussions from being surrounded in this ocean of non-native emfs but now we're going to swivel to plants and and trees and so just like the bees just like anything that's living you're going to see the negative impact that emfs have 
on on plants and, and trees. And so this part of the book or this section in the chapter is entitled The Path into the Dying Forest. Around 1980, the world awoke to a new, seemingly random environmental problem, forest die-off. Large swaths of trees would grow up stunted, age prematurely, drop their leaves, and perish without visible cause. Other stands, tall and vigorous, would suddenly lose all their upper leaves and die from the top down. In the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, in Canada's Bay of Fundy, and in Central Europe, such tragedies were blamed on acid rain contaminated by sulfuric effluent of industrial civilization. But on remote mountain ridges, forests breathing unpolluted air were suffering from a similar infirmity. Wolfgang Voldrot, retired physicist and electrical engineer, thought he knew why. Volkrot, who formerly worked for Simons, the multinational technology giant, had become interested in trees because of the strange behavior of the forests in the wooded development of Bad Neustadt, Germany, where he lived. On the north side of his home, the fir trees had been sickly for years, while on the south side, all the trees were strong and robust. How, he mused, could acid rain fall on only one side of his house? This astute observation led him to investigate not only the trees, but the soil. Quote, It seems clear that soil acidification in Central Europe has increased significantly during the past decades, he wrote. Quote, Paradoxically, this is true even in clear air regions that receive only traces of acid rain. This poses the puzzling question of how soil can become acidic in the absence of chemical precipitation from the air there must be additional culprits, end quote. The existence of a military installation 12 miles to the north of his home made an impression on Volkrot as an electrical engineer, and when he took measurements on his property, he found that the dying trees north of his house were not only being exposed to distant military radar, but happened to be in direct beam of a nearby transmitter used for postal communications. The healthy trees south of his home were situated where they were not exposed to either. He then set out to determine whether this was just coincidental. Quote, I traveled through the mountains of Thichtelberg, the Black Forest, the Bavarian Forest, and Salzburger Land, he wrote. And in every location where military radar stations or postal, telephone, and telegraph relay towers are subjecting the forest to radiation, the tree damage cannot be overlooked. I also traveled around Switzerland. The situation is exactly the same, end quote. And wherever he saw damaged forests near radar stations, there the soil was dead and acidic. At the International Congress on Forest Decline Research in Lake Constance in 1989, Volkrot displayed hundreds of photographs of dead forests, all of which were in line of sight of radar installation, and he presented his theory. Quote, Needles and leaf ribs of the trees are resonant absorbers like antennas, he said and it may be the microwave energy will, will be changed into an electrical current. The electrons migrate as ionic bonds from the leaves, the trunk, and then through the roots into the soil. In the soil, a kind of electrolytic deposition happens, making aluminum, among other things, soluble and generally making the soil acidic similar to the effect of acidic rain. End quote. Of course, no formal studies had been done on the magnitude of induced currents in trees caused by radar stations, 
but his theory generated interest among the forest biologists at the conference and elsewhere. He soon was receiving reports from observers in Canada confirming his prediction that the line of early warning radar stations lining the Canadian far north from Atlantic to Pacific were killing trees in front of them. Following up on experiments by forest biologist Alois Huterman, who had measured microwave-induced current flow in tree needles and leaves, Volkrot did some elementary calculations. He assumed that a tiny amount of energy, a tenth of a watt, was being absorbed by a section of forest standing before a directional radio antenna transmitting long-distance telephone service at a few watts of power from one point to another. He further assumed that the stand contained a hundred trees each having 100 square meters of leaf surface, which was capable of converting the microwave energy into an electric cur- electrical current. Intuitively, the total of only a tenth of a watt of microwave radiation spread out over an acre of soil seemed insignificant, but when Volkrot took into consideration the factor of time, he came to an astonishing conclusion. Quote, Within 10 years of exposure to the directional energy, he wrote, the seemingly minute 0.1 watts received by the group of trees adds up to 8.8 kilowatt hours, end quote. 8.8 kilowatt hours of electricity, he calculated, is sufficient to create 2,000 liters of hydrogen gas within the soil by the electrolytic splitting of water. This would acidify the soil even without a trace of acid rain. And when Volkrot considered that radar installations sometimes broadcast not a few watts, but a few million watts, he realized that such an installation could acidify a phenomenal amount of soil. Partial confirmation of Volkrot's theory came from unpublished field experiments in Switzerland. Young fir trees were irradiated with microwaves at a power density below 10 milliwatts per square centimeter. After four months, the trees had lost nearly all their needles, and the soil in which they were growing was dead and acidic. Meanwhile, foresters in Central Europe were observing a very rapid deterioration in forest health. In West Germany, where the alarm was first sounded, white fir trees began mysteriously to decline around 1970. Spruce caught the affliction in about 1979, Scots pine in about 1980, and European beech in about 1981. Before long, symptoms of ill health and abnormal growth afflicted almost every species of forest tree and several herbs and shrubs. The area of forest affected rose from about 8% in 1982, to about 34% in 1983, to about half the forests in 1984. Die-off was most severe at high elevations. To Volkrot, a simple explanation was at hand. A large number of powerful radar stations, built or upgraded during the 1970s and the 1980s, were irradiating the mountain ranges on both sides of the border between East and West Germany. When Germany was reunited and the radars protecting its former parts were scrapped, Volkrot made another prediction. Quote, The forest with parts of it having been irradiated by these installations for two to three decades, now has a great chance to regenerate, end quote. And this prediction also came true. In 2002, the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, in cooperation with the European Commission, surveyed the conditions of all of the forests of Europe. The resulting report painted a telling portrait. During the mid-1990s, following the end of the Cold War, 
the forests not only in Germany, but throughout Europe, had recovered their vitality. During those years of the 1990s, famous experiments were done in Switzerland, Poland, and Latvia, sponsored by the government of those countries, proving the effects of radio transmissions on people, farm animals, wildlife, and forests. Experiments that it would surely not be possible to do anymore. Moving along to another section here. Schwarzenberg is a small rural community on the River Sense, surrounded by lush green fields. And moving along to a new section here, or a, or a new story, so to speak. Schwarzenberg is a small rural community on the River Sense, surrounded by lush green fields nestled in the northern foothills of the Swiss Alps. In 1939, a short-wave radio station was constructed about three kilometers east of town in order to broadcast Radio Swiss International to Swiss immigrants living abroad. The station broadcast to every continent, shifting the direction of its transmissions every two to four hours so as to reach a different part of the world. At first, the town got along well with its neighbor, but after a new antenna was added in 1954, boosting the station's power to 450,000 watts, the surrounding residents began to complain that it was damaging the health of themselves, their farm animals, and the surrounding forests. Almost four decades later, the Federal Department of Transport and Energy finally launched an investigation. The Swiss Federal Office of Environment, Forests, and Landscape was involved, and Professor Theodore Abelin, head of the Department of Social and Preventative Medicine at the University of Bernay, was placed in charge. In the summer of 1992, an extensive health survey was conducted. Measurements of the magnetic field strength were taken at numerous outdoor locations and in the bedrooms of participants. Residents were given diaries in which to record symptoms and complaints at one-hour intervals during four 10-day periods spread over two summers. Blood pressure was monitored, school records examined, and urine samples collected to measure melatonin levels. Saliva, collected from area cows, measured their melatonin levels as well. During the second summer, at an unannounced time, the transmitter was turned off for three days. The results confirmed the long-standing complaints. Of the people who lived within 900 meters, which is about half a mile, from the antennas, one-third complained of difficulty sleeping, three and a half times as frequently as people who lived four kilometers away. They complained of limb and joint pains four times as often, and of weakness and tiredness three and a half times as often. They woke up at night three times as often. They were more constipated, had more trouble concentrating, and had more stomach pains, heart palpitations, shortness of breath, headaches, vertigo, and cough and sputum. One-third had abnormal blood pressure. 42% spent their leisure time away from home, compared with only 6% of the people who lived 4 kilometers away. The second year's diaries showed the dramatic effect of turning off the transmitter. Even the people who lived 4 kilometers away woke up only about half as often during the nights when the transmitter was off. Melatonin levels did not change significantly in humans, but cows' melatonin levels rose 2 to 7-fold during the three days the transmitter was off and were suppressed again when the transmitter was turned back on. School records from two schools showed that between 1954 and 1993, children at the school near to the antennas had a significantly smaller chance of being promoted from primary to secondary school. It was left to citizens of Schwarzenberg, however, to document the damage to their forests. 
Jorik Hertel, published photographs of the stumps of trees that died, showing decades of compression of their growth rings, but only on the sides of the trees facing the antennas, as though, he wrote, the trees had tried, quote, to get out of the path of a threat to their lives, end quote. His 1991 article in Raum and Zeit, published two months before Volkrat's article, is strewn with photographs of forests in the Schwarzenberg area that were sick and dying. On May 29, 1996, Philippe Roque, uh, the director of the Federal Bureau for Environment, Forests, and Landscapes, stated that, quote, a connection between the established sleep disturbances and the transmitting operation is proven, end quote. The Federal Bureau of Health agreed. On March 28, 1998, the shortwave transmitter station of Schwarzenberg was shut down forever. Hans Ulrich Jacob, a longtime resident, wrote, quote, The most surprising thing for me is the fact that the people have got back to their joyfulness, their frankness, which I never saw before. And I've been living here for more than 40 years in this region. The the depressive, sometimes also aggressive behavior of many of my acquaintances has completely disappeared. A farmer, about 50 years old, told me that two weeks after the transmitter was switched off, he slept through the whole night for the first time in his life. End quote. And Jacob had a story to tell about the trees. Quote, it is wonderful to see, he remarked, how quickly the trees which were treated with the radiation are recovering now. The rate of growth, I think, is twice the growth of years past. The young trees are also growing up straight as a dart and don't try to flee in a direction away from the transmitter. End quote. Dr. Ablin's team took advantage of the planned termination to conduct a before-and-after sleep study on 54 of their original subjects. It lasted from March 23rd until April 3rd, 1998. Not only did sleep quality improve after the shutdown on March 28th, but melatonin levels rebounded just as they had in the cows. During the week after the shutdown, melatonin levels in the people who lived closest to the antennas rose about one and a half and sixfold. And then we'll be moving on to the the last section of this chapter. I guess like the last little, I don't know if this is like an anecdote or just kind of more relating to, again, stuff that's happening with plants and humans. So we'll wrap up this chapter and end the episode there. The recovery of Europe's forests at the end of the Cold War lasted only a decade. In 2002, almost one quarter of the trees visited by a United Nations team again showed signs of damage, with one out of every five trees in Europe suffering from defoliation. Acid rain, meanwhile, had been transferred along with heavy industry to China and India. Many foresters revised their textbooks to attribute forest dieback to global warming instead. But that is not the real culprit either. Cedar trees, some of which are 3,000 years old, having outlasted the medieval warm period, the Little Ice Age, and innumerable droughts and floods, are disappearing from the face of the earth. The venerable cedars of Lebanon, whose 12 remaining stands cover about 5,000 acres, are in visible decay. The cedars of Algeria's Atlas Mountains began to decline around 1982, and the cedars of Morocco have been dying rapidly since 2000. More than 600,000 acres of yellow cedars in remote areas of southeast Alaska and British Columbia are vanishing. 
Approximately 70% of mature trees are dead, with some areas now completely devoid of cedars. Foresters are left thunderstruck by massive mortality on wet soils where yellow cedars have always thrived and where no disease organisms can be isolated on which to pin the blame. In 1990, Paul Hennen, a United States Forest Service scientist stationed in Juneau, made a startling discovery. Old aerial photographs showed that some of the stands of yellow cedars that are damaged today were already damaged in 1927, 1948, 1965, and 1976. And to his further amazement, the areas of decline in 1990 were only slightly larger than they had been in 1927. He then scoured the old forestry literature. Reports from expeditions throughout the 1800s had all included observations of yellow cedar near Sitka and elsewhere in southeast Alaska, and none had mentioned dying trees. Charles Sheldon, the first to report dead yellow cedar anywhere in Alaska, had seen them on Admiralty Island near Peebus Bay in Sitka region in 1909, stating that, quote, vast areas are rolling swamp, with yellow cedar mostly dead, end quote. Harold E. Anderson, in 1916, also saw dying cedars near Sitka. Hennen concluded that no human factor could have caused cedar decline in the Alaska Panhandle so long ago, but he was wrong. NPB Sitka, a 20-kilowatt-long wave radio station operated by the Navy, was installed west of Peebus Bay in 1907. Army radio stations were installed at Petersburg and Wrangell in 1908. Private radio stations were also operating. A 1913 list of the radio stations of the United States includes five operated by the Marconi Company in southeast Alaska, including one at Cake or Kake on Kuprunov Island, directly across Frederick Sound from Peebus Bay. That trees are dying without obvious cause throughout the Amazon rainforest was first noticed in 2005 and has been blamed again on global warming, which caused an unusual drought in that year. Researchers connected with the worldwide RAINFOR, which is capital R-A-I-N-F-O-R, so RAINFOR network, went back to the plots of forest scattered through Brazil and seven neighboring countries that they had been monitoring every three to five years, in some cases in the 1970s. To their surprise, the intensity of the drought in individual locations was only weakly related to the health of the forest. Some areas had tree mortality but no drought, and some had drought but no mortality. Pockets of high mortality were surrounded by trees with little or no decline in growth. But overall, only half the plots gained biomass during 2005 in unprecedented circumstance. The Amazon, they feared, was changing from a net carbon sink to a net carbon source with grave implications for our atmosphere. They blamed the change on global warming since they could find no other reason for a shift. But like Hennen and his team in Alaska, they were wrong. On July 27, 2002, the environment everywhere in the Amazon was suddenly drastically altered. For on that day, an Amazon-financed Raytheon-built $1.4 billion system of radars and sensors called SIVAM, which is capital S-I-V-A-M, which stands for System for Vigilance of the Amazon, began its monitoring activities in a 2 million square mile area of remote and inaccessible wilderness. 
the primary purpose of the new system was to deprive drug traffickers and guerrillas of the protection that the trackless jungle had always offered. But this required pretending that blasting the rainforest with radiation at levels that were unprecedented in the history of the world was of no consequence to the forest's precious inhabitants, human or otherwise. Since 2002, the system's 25 enormous, enormously powerful surveillance radars, 10 Doppler weather radars, 200 floating water monitoring stations, 900 radio-equipped listening posts, 32 radio stations, 8 airborne state-of-the-art surveillance jets equipped with fog-penetrating radar, and 99 attack backslash trainer support aircraft have enabled Brazil to track images as small as human beings anywhere. The system is so pervasive that Brazilian officials boast that they can hear a twig snap anywhere in the Amazon. But it comes at the expense of the greatest diversity of animals and plants on earth, of the people who depend on them, and of our atmosphere. In a small backyard laboratory in the foothills of Colorado's Rocky Mountains, Katie Haggerty performed the simplest, most elegant experiment of all. She hung aluminum window screening around nine potted trembling aspen seedlings to keep out of the radio waves and watched them grow. The screens didn't keep out much light, but to make sure the experiment was well controlled, she bought 27 aspen trees and grew them side by side. Nine grew without any enclosure, nine were surrounded by aluminum screening, and nine were surrounded by fiberglass screening, which kept out just as much light but uh, but let in all the radio waves. She began the experiment on June 6, 2007. After just two months, the new shoots of the radio-shielded aspens were 74% longer and their leaves 60% larger in area than those of either the mock-shielded or the unshielded aspens. On October 5th and 6th, she evaluated the conditions of the three groups of plants. The mock-shielded and the unshielded plants looked just like what most aspens in Colorado now look like every fall. Their leaves and their leaf veins yellow to green, their leaf stalks light red to pink, and all their leaves covered to some degree with gray and browned areas of decay. The shielded aspens looked like what aspens used to look like not long ago. Their leaves were much bigger, largely free of spots and decay, and displayed a wide palette of brilliant fall colors, bright orange, yellow, green, dark red, and black. Their leaf veins were dark to bright red, and their leaf stalks were bright red as well. The suddenness and simultaneity of aspen decline throughout Colorado, which began precisely in 2004, has been a source of wonder and despair to all who love and miss the vivid fall colors of these striking trees. In just three years, from 2003 to 2006, the area of aspen damaged increased from 12,000 acres to 140,000 acres. Aspen mortality in the national forests rose three to sevenfold, with some stands losing 60% of these trees. There is a reason. The state of Colorado operates a sophisticated public safety communications network called the Digital Trunked Radio Station, consisting of 203 tall radio towers whose transmissions cover every square inch of the state. They are heavily used by police, firefighters, park rangers, emergency medical service providers, schools, hospitals, and a wide variety of other municipal, state, federal, and tribal officials. Between 1998 and 2000, 
the pilot phase of the system covering the Denver metropolitan area was built and tested. In 2001 and 2002, radio towers were built throughout northeastern and southeastern Colorado and the eastern plains. And in 2003, 2004, and 2005, the system invaded the western mountainous part of the state, Aspen Territory. Quote, At times, says Alfonso Balmori, I compare what is occurring to a collective ritual of suicide in slow motion, end quote. But he does not think it can continue indefinitely. Quote, I don't know when, he continues, but there will come a day of realization when society will awaken to the serious problem of electromagnetic contamination and its dangerous effects of sparrows, frogs, bees, trees, and all other living beings, including ourselves. End quote. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of that chapter, and I'm going to leave you guys there. I don't think there's much more that needs to be said other than what was covered on this episode. I mean, EMF pollution, non-native EMF pollution, and what it has done to birds and insects, especially the bees and trees and plants, and of course, human beings. So now it's upon you, it's upon us, the humans, to utilize EMF mitigating strategies Uh, Better yet, it would be like find ways to replace this technology with something that's less harmful. I don't know if that's a pipe dream or not. But in this, you know, space and time right now, what can you do for yourself, for your kids, for your family, for your friends, for your pets to reduce the EMF exposure? Because although we cannot see it and we truly cannot feel it because it's deteriorating us through the course of years and decades, we know it's happening Look at the bees. Everything happens to the bees first. And of course, it's happening to us humans and us animals and mammals. Um, And of course, the plants, you know, just as intensely as it is happening to the bees. So just keep that in mind. I hope you enjoyed this three-part series on the invisible rainbow. I hope it's pressed upon you the importance of thinking about the repercussions of this technology. There's pros, there's cons. So it's just a matter of strategizing and in incorporating some EMF protection in your life. We'll get back to some fun interviews beginning next week. I know uh, it gets a little tiring listening to my voice drone on and on for hours. I'm as excited as you guys to to begin some exciting interviews next week and we'll learn for, from some more people and we'll carry on on the Red Light Report. Thanks again for joining me and I'll see you guys next week. Continue to enjoy your summer and as always, light up your health. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.